give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall okay, friends, uh, we're coming into the middle of December. Today is December 18th. Uh, you're clever enough to join us on Friday again for um, Give the People What They Want, uh, coming to you from People's Dispatch uh, Facebook page with uh, Zoe. Hi, Zoe. Hello, Vijay. Hello, Zoe. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, Zoe from People's Dispatch and Prashant from People's Dispatch. Hello. Yes. And uh, I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Um, the uh, head of the United Nations gave a speech recently at the German Bundestag in the German Parliament, uh, where he celebrated 75 years of the United Nations. He said something quite interesting. He said global problems require global solutions. And he said increasingly we're seeing people close their minds, um, you know, to the gravity of what we're dealing with, not only the pandemic, but, you know, hunger, um, the gravity of basic normal problems people are dealing with. Governments are closing their minds to these problems. Uh, I, I think we should start, Zoe, with Colombia, where... The government of Ivan Duque is basically myopic uh, in its attitude towards people's suffering. I wish that uh, Ivan Duque learned to speak German because Antonio Guterres, the head of the UN, gave his speech in German. It was a very clear, clear speech about the need to open our hearts to the problems of the world. Instead, Ivan Duque's government seems to be arresting people who are on the good side of history, people trying to you know, uh, alert us to agricultural distress, people trying to alert us to the basic problems faced by ordinary people. These are people, Zoe, that you know personally as well. And People's Dispatch has been covering what I, I'm sorry, it's editorializing, but these are the crimes of Ivan Duque. Um, what, what have you been writing about, Zoe? Yeah, thanks so much for bringing this up, Vijay. It's really, um, yeah, been an intense week. Um, yeah, Teofilo Acuna, Adelso Gallo, and Robert Daza are three peasant leaders from Colombia who come from different regions of Colombia, all some of the really uh, central and stronghold uh, regions of peasant resistance, of people's resistance. Um, these have been key leaders in mobilizing over the past uh, several years, not only uh, under the government of Ivan Duque, but uh, since 2013 with a huge peasant strike. Um, these are leaders who are active in their communities and their territories. Uh, Robert Daza, for example, he works at a coffee cooperative where the peasant community is organized uh, to produce coffee. And not only, you know, it, it just speaks to the struggle of peasants in Colombia because, uh, Robert Daza and his community, they grow coffee and a lot in Colombia, coffee is a huge export. However, this peasant community decided to not only grow the coffee, but also roast it and be able to, you know, uh, do the productive process so that they're able to take, um, you know, the profit from this uh, process, which usually happens outside of Colombia. Um, Adelso Gallo, similarly, he's been very active in the resistance in his community. 
specifically against the U.S. petroleum giant, Ox giant Occidental Petroleum, which has been in that community for the past three decades, ravaging the environment, uh, violating the rights of the community. And then, of course, Teofilo Acuna, who has been a historic leader in a, a traditional mining community, uh, the mining giant Anglogold Ashanti, has been for decades also trying to assault the, the right to land of the peasant community living there. So these are all really uh, incredible leaders who are rooted in their communities, who are fighting for a more just future. Um, in a press conference yesterday given by um, the uh, comrades from Robert Daza's organization, they spoke about how these are people who are feeding the nation. These are frontline workers who are trying to make the country a better place and are giving actually, you know, do, we've talked about how peasants are frontline workers during the pandemic. They're the ones who are providing food and who are able to make the nation survive. So I think just giving that kind of basic context is necessary. And then, you know, this has been a practice of the Ivan Duque government, a practice of other governments in Colombia, but specifically of this government to criminalize, to stigmatize, and to just say anything and anyone that's fighting for human rights, that's fighting for peace is a criminal. And the movements have been pushing back against this. Uh, 15 days before um, they were arrested, a comrade Julian Gil was released from prison after a similar kind of trumped up charges. He was held for 500 days in prison. Um, and so it's really, really necessary to kind of continue denouncing these types of cases to support the comrades who are, you know, undergoing this uh, assault on their rights. Um, and all of this is with the effort to break the morale, to break the organization's will to continue. But of course, the organizations have responded and saying, we're going to continue resisting. Um, all of the leaders sent these really beautiful audio messages calling on the communities, calling on the members of these organizations to continue fighting for justice and to continue fighting for peace. Has there been any international noise? I mean, uh, you know, I, I looked uh, for reporting on this. I, of course, you know, you look in English, People's Dispatch, one of the few places that's covering this crackdown on social movement leaders in Colombia, sustained crackdown. But has there been any international noise about this? Because it's, this strikes me as something so egregious that you'd think human rights organizations and so on would, you know, get in the queue of denouncing it. Has there been something like this? Yeah, I mean, some, so parallel to the criminalization of leaders, there's also been kind of a genocide of leaders that's happened in an intensified way since 2016, where over a thousand human rights defenders, social leaders, and then also uh, ex-combatants of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, FARC, who are participated in the peace process and yet have been massacred. Over 200 of them have been killed in this time period. Um, and so that this, this genocide, which is what movements are calling it, has received some attention. Some UN bodies have condemned it, uh, but it hasn't received, for example, the attention that it really deserves. You don't see uh, nations and you know, international bodies running to condemn the government of Yvonne Duque. In fact, they don't actually con condemn the government of Yvonne Duque, which has done nothing to respond to this. Uh, this is seen as kind of a, you know, of course it's part of Colombia's war, but who is, who is facilitating this from happening? Who is not taking action against the paramilitary forces? Um, in a lot of these cases, there are, assassinations carried out by the National Army of Colombia. 
was complicit from uh, complicity from the national police. So there's a really big state role in this that hasn't been denounced and that uh, Ivan Duque has gotten kind of a free pass in the international arena because of course he's a US ally and he's done a lot of favors for the US in the fight against Venezuela. We've seen that he's been extremely active um, and also in terms of economic partnerships. Um, uh, you know, of course the whole, uh, the recent uh, renovation of the Plan Colombia, which was signed under Donald Trump and Ivan Duque has been really key for ensuring US investment, for ensuring uh, that kind of free trade relationship, which they've had military aid a lot. You know, you, you mentioned that many of these people are peasant uh, uh, leaders, leaders of, of, you know, farming communities and so on. In India, of course, there's the major farmers revolt continuing. And there's also been a discussion about farmers as frontline workers. And in the 1970s, there used to be a slogan, Jai Jawan, Jai Kisan, uh, praise the soldier, praise the farmer. And, and people are now arguing you've forgotten about the farmer. Uh, but there has, on the other hand, been very good news from India. Uh, Prashant, uh, in your uh, home state of Kerala, um, tell us about this election because it's quite fascinating. Absolutely. And uh, I'm definitely going to be biased, proudly biased over here. <laughs> but these were, of course, local body elections to in the state of Kerala. The elections were for around 1,000 200 uh, institutions, so to speak, at various levels. And uh, it's a very interesting case because uh, Kerala, of course, has been a bastion of left politics for the longest time. Uh, what do you call it? one of the four earliest left elected left governments in the world itself was in Kerala, of course. And there's been a long tradition of people's movements, people's struggles taking place. And one of the key aspects when the left has, each time the left has come to power, they've focused on, they've emphasized on is local self-governance. And so this is something that they've made very clear has to be, uh, you know, has to be a, a key part of the leftist agenda because India is generally a country where, although it's a federal system, the central government has a huge amount of power. And what the right-wing government under Narendra Modi has been doing since coming to power in 2014 is further strengthening it. So local self-governance and local and empowering them to be not just, say, bureaucratic structures, but genuine people's uh, organ people's uh, organizations which represent people's interests has been a focus of the left. And this election we saw, uh, it comes a few months ahead of the state government elections that are happening, that's happening in 2021. And in these elections, the left, left which is already in power in the state, actually won a considerable victory, a majority of local bodies, they captured it. Now, it is interesting because you would, uh, Kerala has a, a, a tendency of swinging wildly in each election. So often when one party is in power, say if you have local elections, the other front wins, so the other party of front wins. But the left, despite being in power because of its work over the past four years, has actually been able to capture the majority of these local, uh, local bodies. And it's extremely interesting because the campaigning has been dominated. The candidates, a lot of them, young candidates, a lot of them women, the campaigning has been dominated by a very young and resurgent left which is actually focused on a couple of very basic things. One, the fact that there have been two rounds of immense flooding in the state since 2016. Before the COVID-19 virus came, there was the Nipah virus, which came as, uh, which hit the state as well. And each and every time the government is, the government and the people together have managed to surmount this because of the community-based nature of how these issues have been addressed. 
So despite having a population whose average age is much higher than the All India average, Kerala's case fatality rate is extremely low. And initially, they were able to really control the number of cases as well, despite the fact that the first COVID-19 case was reported in, in India was reported in Kerala. Because the amount of contract, trace, contract tracing they did, the sheer levels of government that were able to respond to this crisis was immense. And this was accompanied by the fact that left organizations, youth organizations, women's organizations, students' organizations, they were actually in the forefront of relief activity. There was this amazing campaign called Recycle Kerala where they collected material from all over the youth organizations, the Democratic Youth Federation of India, collected material from all over, contributed to recycling campaigns, and all this money was given for the chief minister's fund. So basically what we saw in COVID, during COVID-19, the floods before that was a very, very sustained uh, community-based response to this, to, to COVID-19, to all these disasters. And this has really paid off for uh, the left. And this is the reason why the left was able to come back so strongly and come to power so strongly. And the last thing maybe to note is the fact that this election took place amid one of the most vicious anti-left campaigns of recent times. There was personal slander, both the right-wing government at the center, the Congress party, which is an opposition at the state. There was a continuous attempt at you know, attacking the left, a lot of unfounded allegations, the right-wing media amplifying all of these mindlessly, for lack of a better word, and deliberately. And the amount of sheer misinformation that has been spread in Kerala over the past few months is astounding. And despite all this, the people re realize that you know, this is a solid record of not just governance. And I think it's very important to emphasize this because we are not talking about technocratic administration here. We are not talking about, you know, or we are not talking about a kind of welfareism where a paternal figure grants benefits to the suffering poor people, so to speak. This is a community-led, a community-based method of development, of progress, of taking the state forward, which I think is what the people of Kerala have stood by also. You know, it's very interesting. Um, the 17th of December has just gone by, which is the 10th anniversary of the uh, self-immolation of uh, uh, the you know, hawker in a small Tunisian town that 10 years ago started this dynamic that we have called, you know, the Arab Spring. Um, it's interesting how we focus on these large demonstrations and they are very inspirational and so on. But the slow, patient, hard work of building a left movement is just not as exciting to report. I mean, you know, um, I mean, you know, when we see young people, for instance, like Reshma, uh, Miriam Roy, you know, 21 years old, uh, you know, uh, Alka Rajendran, you know, 21 years old, these new counselors in Kerala uh, out there participating, as you say, in, you know, these projects called Helping Hands and so on. It's just not as visual as the millions of people that are in the squares from the indignados of Spain out to Tahrir Square and so on. And, you know, um, I wrote a, a reflection, a couple of reflections this week on the um, 10 years after the Arab Spring. And there is a cruelty uh, which we talked about last week because basically 10 years after 
the Arab Spring, um, Donald Trump has been able so effectively to basically buy out the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, with arms deals and with selling out the Sahrawi and Yemeni people in order for them to recognize Israel. What started 10 years ago is a demand for greater democracy, greater economic democracy. Also, you know, a kind of new Arab resurgence against the Zionist project. Um, all of that is gone. I mean, some residues remain, but it actually is educational, Prashant, because when you compare this sort of slog work that people in Vietnam and Laos and Kerala and so on have to do to build socialism, how difficult the and intractable in many, many times it just seems like an impossible task. Um, we just don't report that enough. We don't have, you know, the South, Southeast Asian spring. What's the Southeast Asian spring? It's that in Laos and Vietnam, they did massive contact tracing. I mean, where's, where are the photographs of them keeping the coronavirus down? As reporters, I think one has to be quite careful about what we, you know, get excited about. And I don't want to minimize what happened in North Africa. I mean, Tahrir was incredible. Um, I mean, I was personally deeply moved to walk in that square and so on. But there is a way in which we report the big manifestation as history making. But an election of local body councillors, 21 year old, you know, Alka Rajendran, as I said, PP Divya, 32 years old. Somehow this doesn't seem to catch the world's imagination, Prashant. I mean, how, what do we do about this? Exactly. And just uh, that's a, it's an interesting thing you point out because I think it's something that the left has been de uh, dealing with, struggling with for quite some time. The question of how in the face of this media onslaught that we see the fake news, the misinformation spread by traditional so-called mainstream organizations, how does the left sort of, you know, create its own infrastructure in terms of communication, infrastructure of hope and infrastructure of storytelling where we realize that, you know, we need to sort of, we need to sort of talk about these kind of issues. So I think Kerala is probably one of the areas where a lot of this thought is happening very much as well. So a lot of that way, there is a lot of hope ahead there. I mean, uh, that's true. There's a lot of hope in Kerala, but we're also in a situation. I mean, Kerala is in that sense quite extraordinary. You mentioned um, the project of raising money for the chief minister's fund and so on. Um, you know, th these are young people, just, you know, youth, students, whatever, going out there and doing this. Nobody told them. In, in other words, the government didn't direct them. You didn't need to commodify public action. You didn't need NGOs. Uh, these are people who, you know, in one of the districts in Kerala, the local MLA uh, decided to set up just a project called Helping Hands, where young people went door to door and asked people. They provided relief for people without waiting for the government to act. I mean, that in a sense is real socialism, you know, the attitude of socialism. But we're seeing now, um, almost a year into this pandemic, we're seeing now governments basically give up on COVID-19 relief for people. Um, United States government in a miserable way. The government of Zambia, as we've talked about already, uh, already defaulted on its debt and therefore uh, having a very hard time raising funds for relief. Not that the government in Zambia is a very good government or anything. It's an appalling government. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, you, you have the IMF pressure on, on countries. Um, 
you know, India itself with enormous distress. I don't see what's with these relief packages. Zoe, maybe we can start in Washington D.C. very briefly. Uh, they just can't seem. They they they're okay giving trillions or not trillions, maybe billions to the corporates, but thousand dollars, two hundred dollars to ordinary people. If only it were a thousand dollars. They just can't seem to get their ducks in a row, or don't want to. Um, when it comes to you know bailing out working class people, um, as you said, they're fine giving billions to in, to flood into the financial markets to save the economy. Um, but what's on the table now is a one another one time check of six hundred dollars, and so. Uh, the check that came uh, in March, I'm uh, sorry, April, which was the first COVID relief, and at this point the only for working people in the United States, was $1,200. And if you look at kind of the cost of living in any U.S. city, this barely covers rent, $1,200. Now we're looking at an inc a decrease to half of that, which is $600. Um, I think it just kind of shows the complete and other disregard for working people in the United States and the complete disconnection with what the realities are. Um, I mean, this also is in the context of, you know, running uh, the expiration of rent moratoriums. Um, 600 isn't gonna pay your rent, nor is it going to pay probably the back pay that people are gonna be forced to pay. So I think this is really, it's it's un it's not unfortunate, it's, it's appalling, it's, uh, you know, a, another verdict on the true nature of the ruling class in the United States on both sides of the aisle. I mean, you know, I, I just don't even know, Prashant, how we look at this globally, because in the United States, the bill has been caught up, there's been debates and so on. So many countries, Prashant, there is no debate. There is no relief package. You know, Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. let's just put it in context. I know that there's outrage global. My God, in America, they're not doing this. Okay, that's bad. You know, uh, we can say that. But in many countries, there's no debate. Absolutely. Right. And uh, and the other scary thing, like you said, is that what passes off is relief. I think that's what Zoe was talking about as well. One, the amount is so paltry. The other, the other aspect is India is another classic example where, uh, you know, we keep coming back to India, but there were huge amounts uh, announced as part of various relief packages. And the government, you know, went on a publicity overdrive saying, you know, this many billions, the biggest in the world, this many percent of our GDP. But then when economists and experts actually sit down and do the calculations, you find that all of these have either already been sanctioned, announced somewhere, or are basically just credit measures. So this are not actually money reaching the people. It's just, uh, you know, it's just a huge whitewash exercise done, done, uh, exercise done with numbers you know, uh, reallocations and stuff like that. And ultimately the number at the end looks very big and people, the media is impressed for a couple of days is raving coverage and that's what's happening. Or take, let's go to another example where we go to Europe where in France, uh, again, huge number of cases, the president himself contracted COVID-19, but what the government has been busy with for the past couple, couple of months is pushing the global security bill. And what does this bill do? It criminalizes uh, journalists when they try to make take ac accurate coverage of police persons doing their duty. So we saw when George Floyd was killed, the import, the, I mean, the, 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 the video itself was essential in exposing his killers. 
and that so and what the bill in france could do basically is make it far more difficult for journalists or ordinary persons to cover police personnel during the duty and this has been the battle the government has been fighting at this point whereas french society at the journalists everywhere across the world people pro, across the country people protesting against it but this is what their focus seems to be and similarly in country after country you know they're going to lockdowns for instance in the uk again another massive wave there's another lockdown looming students in various universities have been protesting saying we are paying a proper you know semester fee but we are getting nothing out of this so give us you know a break so students for instance the university of manchester and other places physically occupying buildings because they're like we have paid and we are not we have paid the proper fee for this and we are not getting what we are supposed to get so you know be accountable and i think this this is what workers movement students across the world people are saying that be accountable to us you are supposed to you know spend in such a way that we are able to get over this crisis but that's exactly not what's happening you know i i just want to lift up the the uh, something the unicef late last month and we haven't talked about this released a report which i had intended to talk about earlier and i just slipped my mind they um, released a report on covid 19's impact on children in sub saharan africa and it's just a monumental report it shows that the extreme poverty in sub saharan africa is now clocked about 500 million 50 million people have slipped into extreme poverty unicef says because of covid 19 not because of other factors they think covid 19 has pushed 50 million people in sub saharan into poverty large number of them children and there is no relief coming from international agencies you know um, there, there is no debt relief i mean the issue of debt uh, has to be on the surface you know and i actually find again anemic coverage on the question of debt relief anemic coverage um, you know th there's been so much focus on the vaccine which i think is correct it's important to focus on the vaccine lot of focus on the vaccine it's almost like we are all dying to get vaccinated so our lives can you know have some measure of normalcy um, but look what about this i mean this is catastrophic um, no coverage right I, i haven't again seen much of this um, on covid relief for places like you know let's say uh, malawi places you know nigeria um, no coverage on this yeah i would agree there vijay and also kind of highlight that there's no coverage on this also because these are the this is these are structural issues that have been exacerbated by covid so if we were to cover these we'd also have to talk about debt and we'd have to talk about how international financial institutions have these country have these countries basically in a stranglehold um and that they're not going to be able to provide relief because they can't because the US the IMF and the World Bank and all the other kind of institutions will not uh allow them to recover and so i think that's also kind of at the crux of it is that a lot of these this suffering is not just because of covid-19 but it's because of all these other issues and i think uh in order to you know overcome this period we have to look at debt we have to look at sanctions um and we have to look at all these other oppressive mechanisms in the financial market and the financial sphere that uh you know suffocate these countries in the global south specifically 
Well, so you, I, I saw you mentioned, you said the word sanctions, and I think that's important. Today, um, 18th of December, the Progressive International has released a very strong statement uh, against unilateral coercive sanctions. The word unilateral is important there. They point basically to the United States, which has sanctions on over 30 countries, uh, catastrophically in this time of the pandemic on Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, and so on. Um, Zimbabwe, you know, the list is, as I said, over 30 countries. It's a very strong statement. I encourage people to go and have a look at it at progressive.international. Uh, it's a very interesting website name, progressive.international. Go have a look at the statement circulated. Please have discussions because I think it's important for a lot of public scrutiny to come on, on these unilateral and they are illegal sanctions because they're against the UN Charter. I think that should count for something, people. 75 years of the United Nations. Um, I started us off by talking about Antonio Guterres at the Bundestag giving a speech about the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. The Charter is a very noble document, the UN Charter 1945. Um, I swear by both the UN Charter. When I write my stories, I always think about the, the, the groundwork laid by the Charter, which our member countries of the world have adopted. And this statement is good because it's anchored in the Charter. Um, and I know People's Dispatch is doing a story on it. I know Brazil de Fato has already done a story on it. Uh, the, the statement is in, in seven, eight languages. So please have a look at it. And again, I think it's good to have a discussion about this, right? Absolutely. Is it anything else, guys? Or shall we close up now? I mean, there is a lot, but we should close up right now. <laughs> there is a lot. But for more, you should go to People's Dispatch, which is... Um, you know, where both Zoe and Prashant uh, are the editors. Uh, Zoe and Prashant regularly lead the coverage on uh, world news from the perspective of the people and people's movements around the world. It's very important to go regularly, in fact, daily. Um, go and have a look at uh, the world uh, in eight minutes, uh, which is a summary of world news. Very important to have your regular news uh, from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Uh, on another day, I'll explain what Globetrotter is, but for now, just assume it's something very important. Um, we're happy to be with you again every Friday. We'll see you next Friday. Catch the podcast. Don't forget to circulate it. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Zoe, Prashant, see you. Thank you. <laughs> Over.